Hello, I'm John. Hi, I'm Lubna. And this is an orbit. Welcome back, everyone. We are glad you're joining us. Uh, you are in for a real treat today. But first, before we get into that, Lubna, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, John. And I'm feeling even better after our celebratory episode last week. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I, I, I understand that you are a little under the weather right now. So hopefully that celebratory, <laughs> celebratory <laughs> episode is making you feel even better since you're down with COVID right now, right? Yes. I am the C word. Oh, that's right. Well, a C word. Um, I can't. Yeah. Well, at least you you picked a good time to get it since you're visiting family right now. That's right, John. And I believe that you are also with family today. You just got to your hometown. Yeah. Well, I'm not actually in my hometown, oh. but in, I'm I'm in the town where my uh, where my parents live now, which is up in Tennessee. I ah. got up I, I got up early to. Uh, come see them and work from their place today and uh, and also to meet my new nephew who oh. uh, was born a, just a few weeks ago. Oh, how lovely. Congratulations. So you're like a brand new uncle. <laughs> Thanks very much. But yeah, I'm, this, is, this is my fourth time. I have three nieces, but this is uh, my first nephew. Oh, how lovely. Oh, how lovely. This is no, so cute. Four, four nieces. Four nieces. Thankfully, none of them will listen to this podcast, so they won't know that I left one out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's sweet. So, are you like a cool uncle, or or you're strict with them? I, I, no, I'm the cool uncle, very much. Well, I, they, they call me the cool uncle, so I have to trust them. I have to take their word for it. No, I'm, I bet you are. I bet you are for sure. But uh, before we get into stuff, John, just one clarification. I kind of remembered that last. During our last episode, we said you record from your closet, but we didn't tell our listeners why you record from your closet. Would you like to say that? Well, so, yeah, the closet in our house is the only room in the house with carpeting in it, and then being in close proximity to the clothes around it sort of acts as a natural um, sound treatment. It uh, absorbs the sound. So that closet ends up being the only room in the house uh, that is really like a true sound studio because the sound is so dead. There's no reverberation or echo or anything. So that's why I record in the closet. It's for quality. It's for quality control. We're suffering for art. Yes, well said, John. And that's what work from home makes us. Do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, but enough about us. Uh, we are very, very excited to kick off um, sort of a new series. It's really an introduction to a very special program at KBR called the One KBR Tech Fellows Program. And this program was launched in 2021 to recognize, reward, and harness the capabilities of distinguished technical leaders across the company. And these folks are elite. It really is a, an elite group of talent. It's highly selective, this program, and it's for individuals whose contributions in science, engineering, and technology have advanced their field have spurred uh, innovation at KBR. And it's also for people, and this was something that I learned from the interview, that they're really wanting people in this program who are committed to developing the next generation of technical talent. So we thought that it'd be a great idea to meet a few of these people and to talk about their areas of expertise and discuss how uh, that expertise is helping our customers solve their problems. Yes, John, and I, I had the privilege of listening to this interview beforehand, so it is really a treat. I'm not going to say too much, but Amber Eiler, who's one of 
the one KBR Tech Fellows is a super cool lady who talks about remote sensing and we shall let everybody into the episode now. What say John? Let's hear it. Hello, intrepid listeners. Again, I'm John Arnold, co-host of the In Orbit podcast, and boy, do we have a treat for you today. As we said in the opening, we're very excited to be doing some episodes featuring members of the One KBR Technical Fellows Program, a truly elite group of technical talent from across the company. And we're thrilled that the first tech fellow to join us on the podcast is Amber Eiler. Amber is Senior Technical Professional Leader in the National Technologies Group of KBR's Defense and Intel Business Unit, and that rolls up underneath KBR's Government Solutions United States business. Amber has more than 20 years of industry experience in remote sensing for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance applications. She is a patent holder, award winner, and sought-after subject matter expert in in-depth passive geospatial intelligence for the National Air and Space Intelligence Center, the Air Force Research laboratory and other U.S. government customers. And as I mentioned, she is a member of the inaugural class of 1KBR Technical Fellows. Welcome to the podcast, Amber, and thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about this. So we've talked before on the podcast a little bit about remote sensing. Listeners may remember back in season one, we spoke with Doug Jatan over at the Earth Resource Observation and Science Center uh, talking about the Landsat program, another project. But before we get into the nitty gritty, I think it's worth revisiting exactly what remote sensing is. So can you tell us about the differences between active and passive remote sensing and about some of the various kinds of technology you work with? Yeah, sure. I mean, in a very basic sense, remote sensing just refers to any observation of the world from a distance. So our eyes and our ears are an example of that. And, you know, we sense the photons coming in or we hear the sound waves that have uh, come in around us. So in that sense, remote sensing is one of the most fundamental technologies in the world. So basically any device or technique that enhances our ability to remotely sense that kind of falls into the realm of stuff that I might have worked on at some point. So you could go, you could talk about telescopes, you could talk about cell phone cameras, um, even simple uh, photo eye detectors. Uh, They all use remote sensing. Um, Some of those are active and some are passive. So active remote sensors are when the technology that's making those observations is also sending out the signal. So radar and sonar are two examples that a lot of people are familiar with. They sound out some sort of pulse of energy, and then they wait for that signal to come back to them. And after it reflects off that object, uh, that time distance uh, tells you about the distance, the time amount of time that it takes for the signal to come back tells you what the range was to that object. Um, but I primarily work with passive sensors for my work. <laughs> <laughs> so my the sensors that I use basically are observing the energy that's already there in the environment all around us. So uh, seeing light reflecting off objects is, is something that we do every day with our eyes. Um, you can build a sensor that basically does that for you. Um, but you can also build a sensor that would sense it in a different wavelength regime than, than the optical range. So, for instance, thermal sensors are another type of sensor that many people have seen imagery from. And it's basically detecting the amount of heat that's coming from the object instead, instead gotcha. of photons being reflected off of it. Awesome. 
So optical engineering isn't where you started out. Can you tell us about how you landed in this career? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I initially started on this path when I studied astronomy in college. I was taking a, a basic 100 level course. And in one of my first classes, uh, that professor pointed out that if we consider everything around us and every all knowledge that we know, everything that's known so far about the world around us, politics, religion, everything, it only makes up 5% of the known universe. So the other 95% is out there and it's all unexplained and we don't know anything about it. And uh, that kind of set me on the astronomy path. Um, and that is almost entirely uh, a field that is uh, employed employs um, academics. <laughs> so eventually right. I decided to leave <laughs> academe. And when I decided to leave academe, I had to figure out, well, where else could the skills that I've learned apply? And remote sensing was pretty much a natural fit. Uh, I was already doing it for astronomical objects. So if you want to apply it to industry, you can just turn the telescopes around, point them at the ground, and uh, do the exact same things instead. So yeah, I had to kind of refine my expertise to um, refer to phenomenologies that were immediately around me as opposed to far away. Gotcha. Um, but I've, I found it to be equally compelling. Yeah, the natural fit. That's great. Um, can you tell us about some of the main applications? You've mentioned a, a few of them, uh, some of the applications for remote sensing, you know, whether it's defense or intel or civilian, there's a, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, there is. They're all, you know, ultimately tied together because they all involve sensors in some way. But it's kind of the way in which they're used that kind of differentiates those those three different things. So for defense, I would say um, an, a good example might be uh, thinking of um, an aircraft with a radar on it. Um, they're, they obviously want to be immediately aware of their surroundings if there's other aircraft or incoming objects so that they can avoid them. So that's it's kind of an immediate reaction to what you're remotely sensing. Um, Intel is similar, but it's, it's, for, it's usually over a much longer time scale. So for instance, we might use that same aircraft, um, but put a camera on it this time and collect imagery of the ground that we're flying over. Then later on, that imagery might be um, exploited in some way to try and understand what kinds of activity was going on underneath us as we were flying over. And then the civilian case would be um, even potentially even longer time scales. So sometimes the observations could be, let's combine a bunch of different um, observations. Uh, a lot of people have used Google Earth, for example, and, and maybe in right. an immediate sense, maybe you would look at your Google Earth image just to see, okay, I'm driving there tomorrow and I want to know whether or not the soccer field is on the right side or the left side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> right. But so that's kind of an immediate analysis. But I think a lot of other ones, like you were mentioning earlier with Landsat, um, the, those examples, you, you need to combine information over a larger period of time to combine it together and maybe understand the land use that's uh, happening right. in that area. Or um, weather prediction is another example. So you can have these short-term or long-term weather predictions, and that's all using remote sensing data as well. 
Excellent. You have specific expertise in something called polarimetric sensing. How does that differ from some of the other types of remote sensing that you've described and what problems does that help our customers solve? Yeah, that's a great question. Polarization is really kind of a unique quality of light that most people don't have much intuition about because we don't really sense it with our eyes. Um, the, all the light around us is randomly polarized, which basically means um, all the different possible states of polarized light are coming in in equal amounts. And because of that, you know, our eyes don't need to be um, sensitive to it. Um, however, light, when it hits a surface, it becomes polarized in a specific way. So each time it bounces off of another material, you get a different type of polarization based on both the geometry of the light coming in and the light bouncing out, as well as the material that it's made out of. Okay. Um, so, so if you build a sensor, you can try to detect those different kinds of polarization. And the tricky part is interpreting it. Right, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, because it's not just the material difference, and it's not just the geometry that was involved. You have to think about those both at the same time. So it can kind of get complicated. Um, so the way that you could use this um, to solve a problem for, for a customer, one example is to, to use something where you know the surfaces are kind of continuous. So uh, water is a nice example. So if you have a calm body of water and there are two materials in that body of water, um, for instance, oil or an algal bloom, um, either ones of those would look really different from the water because their material properties are so different. So as long as the geometry is the same, um, you would be able to detect that material difference. But if you change the geometries, then you also need to consider that variable in it and it gets a little more complicated. Right. That's fascinating. Something else that was interesting that caught my eye while preparing for this was reading about how you and your team have been involved in researching atmospheric turbulence and how that impacts remote sensing. Can you tell us about some of the breakthroughs you've had that are helping solve problems and, and move that discipline forward? Sure. Yeah. Um, many people have experienced um, turbulence either on an aircraft or they've also sometimes seen it and not realized, oh, that's what uh, turbulence is. Uh, the example that I frequently tell people to think about is on a hot summer day when you're looking down um, an asphalt road, mm -hmm. you can kind of see this wavy pattern in the distance there. And that's that's turbulence. And what you're seeing there is the the heat from the road is different from the, the temperature in the air. And because of that, it's causing this scintillation kind of effect. So. Remote sensing experts for years have been trying to develop technologies that can kind of undo those effects because they don't just impact the case when you're looking down the road. They can affect pretty much any kind of imaging that you're taking over a distance. So, you know, there's already a lot of uh, a huge body of work where mathematically people have been working to try and, and solve that problem to undo the effects. Um, our breakthrough is really a new way to look at that math, and we're using a numerical method called dictionaries. So those dictionaries are essentially just specialized ways to represent the characteristics of the turbulence. And because of the math that's involved in it, the dictionaries are a much more efficient way, and they're more accurate 
accurate at the same time at being able to represent turbulence. So if we use a dictionary in turbulence mitigation processes, uh, we are able to restore the imagery in a, in a new and more efficient way than previous methods. That is awesome. Yeah, I think no one that knows me would be surprised that I did not know that the that the that scintillation effect over the asphalt on a hot summer day is also a form of turbulence. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Um, so what are some technological trends that you're seeing right now in remote sensing? And what are some improvements or new discoveries that you think are going to take the field even further? Yeah, there's kind of short-term and long-term uh, technological trends that I think uh, probably one of the most important ones, though, is just the fact that the world is such a big place. Mm -hmm. And you know, everybody wants to know what's going on everywhere, but you can't be everywhere right. at the same time. So, so much remote sensing is now going on from space. And I think that that industry is going to continue to grow. Um, so the big challenge there is where I think a lot of the innovations are going to come from. For the most part, if you're sensing uh, the Earth, you're probably in at least low Earth orbit, which is like 600 kilometers away. So if you're that far away, you're going to need a really big telescope to be able to see things as well as you do when you're on the ground. Right. Um, but that's not practical, right? You don't want to put, you know, a, a football sized field telescope up in space. That's just not cost effective. It's right. not going to work out for you. So instead, what a lot of the innovations that are happening now, they're looking more at constellations of satellites where lots of smaller ones are being fused together. And all that information, sometimes it's from different types of remote sensors, or sometimes it's from the same type and they're being fused together in other ways. Um, all those different technologies to fuse that information together and do more with with few uh, lots of smaller right. systems um, that that allows you to fuse information together and kind of uh, recover the the observations and and understand what's going on on the ground. So I think that's probably going to be in the next ten years. We're going to see lots of innovations in that area. I heard in uh, an interview that you gave, you were also talking about some of the tools of this, you know, this fourth industrial. Uh, revolution, uh, things like uh, quantum and uh, machine learning and things like that. And can you speak just a little bit about that, what you're seeing perhaps already? Yeah, sure. So I, I think quantum sensing is really going to be a, a huge thing in the future. I, I think the timeline is a lot longer on that. Um, and I have to be honest, I'm not an expert in right. it, so I don't completely understand how it's going to be employed. But um, there, are, there are kind of two big benefits from it. So particularly in situations where it's a yes or a no answer, um, it can be used to really help you speed up your calculations. But the other thing is apparently the precision of quantum sensors can be extremely high. So, uh, you know, right now, I think typical sensors, you know, have, for instance, maybe 1024 color levels that they can sense at one time. You know, you could you could dramatically improve that and have much, much more bit depth, which would allow you to sense really, really faint things at the same time as uh, really, really bright things. And you potentially be able to, you know, collect data that would cover all that range. Right. And um, that would that would potentially allow you to do a lot more um, research and, and understanding with different, you know, different 
sensitivities. Sure, sure. Well, something to look forward to anyway, <laughs> to help, to help right, in the process, yeah. to speed things along. So we, we've mentioned already, you are a member of the inaugural class of 1KBR Technical Fellows. What's been the experience so far? How has being a part of that program helped spur innovation for you? So far, it's been a, it's been a great program to be a part of. And uh, for me, the biggest learning curve was right at the beginning. We had a, a big kickoff event, and um, it was a great opportunity to meet all the executive leadership team. Um, but more importantly, to learn really about what each of those sectors is kind of working on. Um, so, you know, we I was relatively new to the company because um, Centauri was acquired by KBR. And uh, when we were acquired, I, I kind of came in and continued to work with the people that I had been working right. with. So this really gave me an opportunity to learn more about the other parts of the company. Um, and also what, you know, what they were doing and, and also what new opportunities were being pursued. So that was kind of a, a behind the scenes thing that we got a little bit of insight into. And that was really helpful because we could target um, how we might want to do research that might hit some of these new areas that they were interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I also learned a lot about other parts of the company and the resources that were available. So that was also at the kickoff. They had um, like the legal team came and the legal team told us, you know, how they could help us protect intellectual property. And uh, the marketing team came and the communication support team. And we learned about that. And I've, I've taken advantage of some of those things um, for preparing for conferences. And um, it's been it's been a big help to have, you know, that additional um, support. Excellent. I, I didn't realize that you were that you came on board when the Centauri folks came along. So I know that's been a while, but we're, we are thrilled and happy to have you with us, part of the family. Um, what would you say to someone that's considering applying to the 1KBR Technical Fellows Program? That's a good question. It's, um, they've made some changes. So I just learned that um, one of the, I, I don't, I'm not sure I would call it a change, but one of the things they're making a big deal about this year in terms of the applications is uh, the type of person they're looking for in terms of fellows. So mm -hmm. not only are they looking for technical experts, but they're also really looking for candidates who embody the one KBR ideals. Right. So in particular, they're looking for people who are creating innovative environments that kind of help with growing our technical capabilities. And uh, that might come in the form of mentoring or inspiring the next generation in some way, or also people who foster communications across KBR. So people working outside of their group, that would be another way that you could embody the one KBR ideal. So if you think you might fit that bill, I guess I'd recommend applying because um, they've also made some changes to how they're going to be doing or, or evaluating the um, applications for this year. So each applicant um, is going to be given specific feedback um, after applying. And what's great about that is you'll receive, um, you know, not only feedback about your application, but, you know, if, if you might want to apply again in the future. So I think you, you, can, you can really get some good pointers in that way. Um, they also plan to use that to sometimes identify people who maybe they'd like to route to a different track. So, for instance, maybe... 
yeah, maybe instead of going a technical path, they might recommend you for a managerial path. So that's another useful thing that could come out of being evaluated in that way. Um, because after all, it is a very competitive program. Right. So the bar is pretty high and not, not everyone's going to be able to be accepted. I think that's, I mean, any kind of constructive criticism that you're getting or, or p- feedback that's going to help you grow professionally. I think that's, that's valuable. It's an interesting, uh, an interesting approach. Um, we'll look forward to seeing who all is in the next class. Absolutely. I, I know that reading, reading all yours and all the other bios so far uh, this past year has been, I mean, the work that you all are doing is incredible. Um, what's a career moment or customer problem solved so far in your career of which you're particularly proud? Yeah, one of my proudest moments was when I received the uh, Rudolph Kingslake Medal and Prize. You received that from the optical engineering organization called SPIE. Um, SPIE awards that prize to the best paper to appear in the journal Optical Engineering for a given year. And that meant a lot to me because not only was my technical work being um, recognized for the um, turbulence with dictionaries work that we had done, um, but it was also basically acknowledging the readability of our paper and that I was able to accomplish both. That's not something that all technical writers can say, so I was Uh, very (laughs) proud of that. As, as a as a grammar nerd and and someone that likes to really get down and and dirty with some technical papers, I can appreciate that. So I'm sure that was a well deserved honor. <laughs> yeah, guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the last question before I let you go: What's a problem you'd like to see solved because of the work that you're doing? I personally think that because remote sensing is an evidence based way to understand the effects around us. I think one of the best places it could be used would be for trying to understand and help us improve our knowledge about climate change. Mm. For instance, atmospheric scientists have been developing models for decades, but now measurements are really needed to help them verify which models are best and why. But you could also simultaneously use remote sensing measurements to help with managing the effects that we already know about and understand. So for example, we know methane is a really powerful greenhouse gas, right. but not many organizations are really monitoring the um, their, whatever their system is and, and the emission levels. So the same could be said, for example, earlier I was talking about effluent on water. Um, if you can detect leaks that are starting to occur and catch them earlier, you know, that can also help with um, defeating some of these climate change effects. So I'd really like to see the work that I'm doing help to improve our global response to climate change, whether that would be in terms of responding to detected issues or in terms of improving our physical understanding of the problem in the first place. That's so funny that you mentioned that because earlier today when I was thinking about, you know, preparing for this conversation, I was thinking about asking you a question about how remote sensing could be used in relationship to studying climate change and isolating different factors that contribute to it. So that was a happy synchronicity. And and also be, yeah, something something very cool that uh, I'm sure that uh, KBR could make good use of in its uh, in its mission to help customers be more environmentally responsible. So that's fantastic. Absolutely. Well, Amber, 
I want to thank you again for your time. I hope that you have enjoyed speaking to me as much as I've enjoyed listening to you. Yes. And uh, I, I'm really excited for folks to hear this interview. Okay, terrific. I'm looking forward to it as well. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. So what an amazingly insightful episode that was, John. How lucky are you? I am so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really enjoyed speaking with Amber. I was familiar with her from the International Women in Engineering Day and also just because of some of the, the work that the Global Marketing and Communications team has done uh, in coordination with the people that sort of run the 1KBR Tech Fellows program. So it's been really, really interesting to to read about them, to to actually get to right. read a little bit of some of their papers to and then to try to divine what it is that those things are talking about because it can get it can get pretty heady but it is fascinating stuff very very interesting and this is this is one like I said in the interview this is one of my uh, one of the areas that I find particularly interesting right and even I did not know I mean for instance that the scintillating effect that uh, <laughs> that's that's that the heat has on the asphalt is actually due to turbulence I used to find it very artistic you know when I used to watch it yeah but um uh, that was like that was like my eureka moment and i was like wow i mean i never knew this and and there were so many such things um you know that she touched upon and and that you kind of brought up uh, you know very thoughtfully and it was a very well researched interview john i must say oh, thank I, mean, you. I saw the kind of uh, research you did behind it and and that really shows that you are interested in the topic well, there's we, we're sort of spoiled for for interesting things to know and learn about at KBR. And if you're interested in learning more about the the One KBR Technical Fellows Program, you can find out more at kbr.com. If you're interested in learning more about uh, Amber and those and those other fellows, there's plenty of information out there. Um, and if you're interested, based on what you heard today, in learning more about possible careers at KBR, you can head to our uh, very very robust careers page and what else if you want to drop us a line you can always get a hold of us at inorbit at kbr.com yes is there anything else we're leaving out thanks always to emma again and uh yeah and that that was the episode i think i think i would have wanted to hear more um you know but um oh my gosh yeah <laughs> that conversation could have lasted two hours or, or longer um, but I always you know feel that we're very fortunate to get the time that we have with these yes. folks they're very very busy and have more important things to do than to talk to us but um, we're very grateful for that time and uh, and hope that our listeners are getting as much out of it as we are absolutely it was very very enriching the whole conversation between you and Amber so thank you Amber also for making time for in orbit and definitely stay tuned for more members of the one kbr tech fellows program we're going to have some more guests from the program on in the coming weeks awesome so with that we end this episode of in orbit with john arnold and the Presley connecting from very different parts of the globe right again but in each other's orbit <laughs> that's right okay then Bye-bye. bye bye